Big news in the aggressive life. We're coming up on our one millionth download. And to celebrate that milestone, we're giving away some of the good stuff that's been featured on the podcast. Bottle of bourbon, tickets to man camp, some outdoor gear, and much, much more. In fact, women camp, too. We should get women camp. It's got free tickets to women camp, free tickets to everything. There's only one way to get entered into the drawing to win. Leave a rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. All the written reviews will be entered into a hat and will draw out winners live on an upcoming recording of the podcast. How long is the contest open? I don't know. Depends on when we hit the 1 million mark, but it won't last long. Leave your review and you just might win big and you might actually help us. Come on, help a brother out. We want to get this podcast in many people's lives and hands and earbuds as possible. And for that to happen, we need good reviews. So go do that and let's get to the show. Welcome to the aggressive life. Man, I got to tell you, I'm really excited about today. Of course, when do I say I'm not excited about a podcast? I mean, I guess there's been some people who I thought were going to be dogs when we started, but they ended up being pretty darn good. But generally speaking, I'm really up for the people I speak with. And that includes today. Today is going to be a little different. And how often have I said today is going to be a little different? But it is going to be different. I am a pastor by day. It's my day job. That's my day gig. Kind of kind of side hustle going on here with the aggressive life. That side hustle makes you think that like I'm earning money. No, I'm not earning jack squat. Nothing. I'm not doing this to earn any money. I'm doing this to help you get you more aggressive. But it's not in my core job description. So it's a fun thing to do. But today's guest is right down the pipe of my core job description. Today, we're going to talk with a preeminent theologian. Like, when's the last time you actually heard a preeminent theologian anywhere? Well, you're going to hear one today. While this podcast isn't necessarily a religious one, it is one that hits us where we are, and most of us have some sense of spirituality, some sense of religiosity, some belief in God. And I follow the Christian God, the God that has been dialogued in 66 books of the Bible, the the God that brought forth Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, the God that created miracles and turning water into wine and great, great crazy stuff. A God who is oftentimes very difficult to understand. A God who sometimes, just between us girls, I actually doubt. Yes, a God who has things written in the Bible that when I read, I go, man, that's that's a tough one. Or some days I believe one thing on one thing, and then the next day I believe another thing on that thing, except for the topic today. Today, we're going to talk about the most important spiritual event that ever happened. It's known as the resurrection or as my guest, N.T. Wright, a famed theologian and a very, very just good, good dude. From what I understand, I haven't spent time with him other than right now. His book is entitled The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's a think honking book. My gosh, I'm looking at this thing. I've got a a bicep, the left bicep that's starting to to be detached. So I haven't been doing curls recently. When I start curls, I'll make sure I put this in my right hand, not my left hand, which has the detaching bicep, because this is a this is a horse choking book and it's written by a man who is very, very respected. He is the former bishop of Durham in the Church of England. Over the past 20 years, he served as a professor of New Testament studies at Cambridge. He uh, is now at the University of St. Andrews. He's a regular contributor to faith conversations on radio and television. If you thought you had a handle on Easter, which is coming up right around the corner, Professor Wright, I think is going to blow your mind out of the water. He's going to put us beyond some intellectual knowledge into maybe actually living your life differently. Welcome to the aggressive life, N.T. Wright. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Oh, man, this is going to be a treat. First off, I should probably know this if I had done my homework 
more significantly, I don't feel like I need to do any homework with you because I've read so much of your material and have followed you and have been very, very thankful for your contribution to Christian thought, to life, and to my life. But one thing I don't know is what does N.T. stand for? Is that your name or does that stand for something else? <laughs> no. My first name is Nicholas. My second name is Thomas. It's quite simple. My father's name was Nicholas, and so was his father, and his father, and his father. So the Nicholas is coming down one side of the family. My mother's father's name was Thomas. So uh, calling me Nicholas Thomas was kind of combining the two sides of the family. I think it was a complete accident uh, that it just happened to be also the subject matter that I've spent my life studying, namely the New Testament. We tried the same trick with my younger son. We called him Oliver Thomas. And so far, he has shown no inclination to be an Old Testament scholar, though he is now becoming a theologian. So he's he's on the way. <laughs> well, I'll just give you a nice big softball. Tell us, what does Easter mean? What is the big deal about Easter bunnies and spring? <laughs> well, Easter bunnies and spring. We think of Easter as the world coming to life again. It just happens that way. But Easter is about God's new creation being born. It's not about that one day there'll be pie in the sky when you die. It's not about a vague, happy ending after Jesus' sad death um, or any such thing. I mean, of course, it is a happy ending, but it's actually a happy new beginning. If you look at the stories of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though those stories occur at the end of the books in which we find them, the whole feel of the stories is something new is happening here, something radically new and unexpected. A new world is being born in the middle of the old one. If you study the history, the world has been transformed. It is still rumbling on with so much evil and suffering and sin and death, but there are all sorts of new things which are happening which were not thought of as possible in the first century. And so we track that back and we say Easter is the turning point of history. This is the point when the God who made the world said, now you'll see what all those promises about me rescuing and renewing the world were going to be about. So Easter is the beginning of God's new creation. You come from a culture that is a few decades ahead of America's culture spiritually and religiously. America has been decelerating at a much more rapid pace to become Europe than we are. And what I mean by that is, you know, America, oh gosh, when I started the church that I started 25 years ago, I think it was like 50% of America identified with the local church, was part of a local church. Uh, about 10 years ago, that would have been down to probably 30%. After COVID, it's probably, I haven't seen statistics on this, but it's less than 30%, that's for sure. You're in, a, in, a, in an environmental context where it's like one and a half percent of the country is affiliated with the church and therefore affiliated with the Christian faith or Christian thinking. Is, is that about right? It's hard to know. And actually, where I'm now living, Oxford, may be atypical because there are more churches per square mile and monasteries and seminaries and all sorts of similar institutions than almost anywhere else in the country. So I may be getting a false impression. But I tell you, if you walk around Oxford on a Sunday, you will see all these people going to church. And if you go huh. to this church down that way, this one up that way, these churches are full, particularly during the university term when there's lots of students around. And uh, my wife and I regularly worship in one of the college chapels. And uh, often, for the, particularly for the great occasions, that is absolutely packed to the doors, and so are many others around the town. So when people talk about the decline or demise of Christianity as though it was just a few old people sitting in the pews on a Sunday and everyone else somewhere else, I really don't see that. And I have to say that in the diocese where I was privileged to serve as bishop, we did have some churches that so few people went to that eventually we had to shut them. But we also had other places where we were either opening new churches or building extensions to existing ones. So it isn't all one way traffic. And I have to say as well, one of the things that's happened is that the traditional denominations, whether it's Roman Catholic or Methodist or Anglican, which is mine, or whichever, they have been in numerical decline in terms of official membership. But there's also been a huge burgeoning uh, free, free church situation. By free church, I don't just mean Methodist or Presbyterian. I mean, the newer, what used to be called house church movements, often now they have taken over local cinemas or theatres because the buildings they had weren't big 
doing enough. All sorts of things are happening. And I've been at conferences where the place is full of young people doing exciting things, hearing the gospel, um, figuring out what that means to live it out in real life. So God is just doing new things with maybe new people. And, and we have to be ready for God to do new things, which is kind of what Easter is all about, God doing new things that we didn't expect. Yeah, there's no question that the Christianity is on the rise globally. There's, there's no question about that. Uh, some of us who just live in the West get a little bit bummed out because we're not the center of the action anymore, where you have massive miracles and massive church growth happening south of the equator. And we just, you know, we, we're not seeing that because we're stuck in our old ways. It, part of the problem there is that the Western churches have allowed themselves to be shunted into a corner where the rest of the world will say, you teach people how to say their prayers, tell them how to go to heaven. Uh, we're quite happy you should do that, but don't encroach on our turf. Whereas we believe in a God who says, when the spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we see Jesus doing that with Pontius Pilate. In other words, people who are indwelt by God's spirit ought to be the people who hold up a mirror to power, who speak the truth to power, who are able to say, this is how God's world ought to be, and you guys in power aren't doing it right. Now, if the church does that, people howl us down and say, you're not supposed to talk about politics, you're supposed to talk about spirituality. But we believe in a God whose who's incarnate son Jesus taught us to pray that thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And until we wake up to that, we churches in the West are simply colluding with our own Platonizing. You know, the Greek philosopher Plato, this world may be all right, but it's not actually the real place. The real place is a super spiritual world somewhere else. We've colluded with that. Half our hymns say that, half our prayers say that. Is it any wonder that we don't cut much ice? But where people actually take the biblical gospel seriously, which starts with the bodily resurrection of Jesus, by the way, then you'll see people made, making waves and people not liking it because it's disturbing. Easter was extremely disturbing, including for the first disciples. They weren't expecting Jesus back again in this bodily form. They were totally bemused, as we see in the stories. Wait a minute. You're saying that Jesus actually literally physically historically came back from the dead you're you're you actually believe that you're saying that's I, easter i wouldn't say i wouldn't say he came back from the dead that implies that he goes into this state called death and then comes back again in the new testament it's very strange because this is not what was expected that he seems to go into the state we call death and then out the other side into a new sort of bodily existence for which there was no precedent and of which there as yet remains no subsequent example. Jesus went on through death and out the other side. That's the most extraordinary claim. But when you look at the stories, they make so much sense once you realize it. You see, for the resurrection, the point is this, that uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was inaugurating, launching, a new way of being. If you look at the stories, the risen Jesus is not always recognized even, and yet they realize, then they realize it's him. At one point in John's gospel, the disciples meeting him, uh, John says, none of them dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. It's as though he's the same, but different. And when you track that difference, it's to do with the fact that his risen body is now fully at home on earth and in heaven, so that he is able to be visible one moment and not the next. This is like weird. It's it's just not what people were imagining would happen. Um, but this is how the stories work. And the proof of the pudding is that then the risen Jesus breathes his own spirit on his followers, and then they find new creation starting to happen inside them and then through them as they are going about doing what they have to do. I grew up in a church that I imagine to be very European-like. Maybe I'm judging European churches, or obviously I have the wrong perspective because all the statistics I always heard is one and a half percent. So if that's wrong, awesome, great, 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 great. That that but, may be that may be right, but go on. But my perspective uh, is kind of formed by the church I grew up in, which I thought that the average mainline church in Europe was like. It looked like this. I went to church as a little kid. I was forced to go to church as a little kid. I was bored out of my gourd. It was utterly irrelevant to me. And I 
was falling asleep in the back pew only because my mom was forcing me to go while she played the piano like she had mittens on. She was the she was the organist in our in our church. And so and this church was um Oh, you might, some might call it liberal. It was definitely liberal. However you want to define liberal, it was definitely liberal. I was in a Christmas play as a little kid where I was playing a, a role in it. And you ever have one of those flashbacks where you go, wait a minute, what kind of play was I in? I was I was in my early 30s, late 20s when I realized I was in a play in a church where Jesus had an older brother. <laughs> saying that he, you know, that he didn't, that he didn't actually have a, a virgin birth, that Mary had been sexually active before, before Jesus came around. And in that cultural climate, that theological climate, I never heard about resurrection. To me, resurrection or Easter, it was, it was just what I mentioned before. It was literally spring flowers and Easter bunny, and that was in church. And I became a Christian you become a Christian. You're not born a Christian. You actually become a Christian. I became a Christian age 15, 16. And it didn't sink in that this whole resurrection thought was a literal, physical, historical thing really until I was about, I'm going to say I was 25 or so, 25, 10 years into following Christ. I'd heard and talked about the cross. I don't, but like, wait, what? Why N.T. Wright is the resurrection, well, first of all, I'm going to ask you, why is it so important? Before we do that, though, why are you confident it's true? <laughs> I'm confident it's true because of a convergence of many, many things. There is no one line of thought which says, therefore, it must be true. But when I, as a historian, and uh, ancient history was part of my first degree here in Oxford 50 years ago, as a historian, I look at the rise of early Christianity. I look at the Jewish world out of which early Christianity emerged. I look at the world of Greece and Rome into which early Christianity went. I study, as you know because you've read the book, um, I study the beliefs about life after death that people in those different worlds had, and they're quite clear and quite articulate. And then you say, hang on, all the early Christians, starting with Paul, who was our earliest writer, but then the Gospels and Hebrews and Revelation and so on, um, they all have this view of what happens after death, which is significantly different, certainly from the Greeks and the Romans, for whom resurrection was a complete non-starter, that nobody in the Greco-Roman world believed in actual bodily resurrection. They knew what the word meant, and they kind of laughed at it, a fancy thinking that that would happen. We know perfectly well it doesn't. You know, it wasn't modern liberalism who said we we have discovered that dead people don't rise. Homer knew that. You know, um, uh, Socrates knew that. Um, so, but then the Jews, some of whom, the Pharisees at least, believed that God would raise all the dead at the end. Um, they never thought that God would raise one person in the middle of history, nor did they have this view that if somebody was raised or if the dead were raised, they would be simultaneously at home in earth and heaven and that they would have what I've called a kind of a transphysical body. That is a body which is certainly physical, but seems to be more than physical. When I look at the rise of early Christianity and what they believed about death and life after death and then life after, when you look at those beliefs, I cannot explain how those beliefs came about unless you say they all really did believe that Jesus of Nazareth was bodily raised from the dead into this new form of physicality. And when we look at the reasons why they believe that, they are extraordinarily powerful. That is undoubtedly what they believe. I very much hear what you say about the liberal context because growing, I grew up in a kind of a middle of the road, typical Anglican church in the 1950s and 60s. And I don't remember ever being taught about the resurrection specifically. It was just, okay, on the third day he was raised and he went to heaven so when we die we'll go to heaven and of course that is a total travesty that's not what the new testament's about at all it's not about the resurrection equals going to heaven jesus is ascended so that now he is the lord of heaven and earth i never heard sermons about that when i was growing up the reason i've come to this is that i've had the good fortune for the last 50 years to study the new testament in its world quite intensively and to have the excitement and the joy of not only seeing it make historical sense but seeing it make personal and pastoral sense to uh, so many people who uh, are amazed by it as you clearly were when you finally tumbled to it in your 20s 
Right, right. So, so evidence point number one is this is a first-in-class concept that these people arrived at because they actually saw it. They weren't following on in some spiritual or religious tradition that believed this happened. This was like came out of nowhere. There's no precedence for this. Yep. So the early church that they that they believed this or that all these eyewitnesses saw this, it's not that they saw something that they were already preceded with, the idea, like they saw the Easter Bunny, and I was expecting to see the Easter Bunny. It was something new. Right. No, it, it, exactly. I mean, it's very clear, and you see it in that wonderful story at the end of Luke's Gospel, the two people on the road to Emmaus who are cast down and in despair, and Jesus himself comes and walks with them. They don't recognize him, um, and they say, we have been following this man, Jesus of Nazareth. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, and he wasn't because they caught him and killed him and he died on a cross. And um, that's in that world, if you have followed somebody believing that he was Israel's Messiah, a Messiah is supposed to be defeating the pagan enemy and rebuilding or cleansing the temple and bringing justice and peace to the world. And if your guy gets picked up by the authorities and killed, especially crucified, which is very nasty and very shameful, then he obviously wasn't the Messiah. You backed the wrong horse. Now, here's the thing. And I remember when I was first researching this, I was really excited about this point, and I still am really, that within a hundred years either side of Jesus, we know of 10 or a dozen different messianic movements or quasi-messianic movements, people who are leaders of some revolutionary faction, people whose followers say, we think he's the Messiah. And it ends with somebody called Bar Kokhva. Actually, that's his nickname. It means son of the star, Simeon ben Kozibar, more or less exactly 100 years after Jesus. And many people, including the greatest rabbi of the time, Akibar, believe that he is the Messiah. And then the Romans came and caught him and killed him because that's what the Romans were very good at doing. And that happened to pretty well all those other messiahs, would-be messiahs. And after all those others that these were people who believed in the ultimate resurrection, but nobody went around saying, actually, I think he's been raised from the dead, because obviously he hadn't been. Um, the only reason you would say he's been raised from the dead is if something so mind-blowingly uh, uh, extraordinary and vivid had happened, and you'd been witnessing it, that you had to say, this wasn't part of our game plan, but now that we see it, it makes sense of all that other stuff, the things he said which we didn't quite understand, the bits of Israel's scriptures which we never quite understood before. It all comes rushing together. And that's what we see going on in the, 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 the middle of the first century as the early Christians are coming to terms with what's just happened and with the scriptural roots which mean that it's not just a zany one-off, like, why would God do such a crazy thing? But, oh my goodness, we can see from Genesis, from Exodus, from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, from Isaiah, from Daniel, from the Psalms, suddenly it all makes sense. And that's what gives it that depth and body, so that it isn't just a few weird people saying, we think something very odd has happened, but that's an entire worldview. And then the worldview opens up and says, and actually, he has risen from the dead, and that's the revelation of God's love for you, because the resurrection says God so loved the world that he didn't throw it in the trash can. He is recreating it. And so the, the message of the resurrection is a message of God's love to which Christian faith is the answering love. As we come into Easter, the normal stuff will happen that happens every year. PBS, NPR, Time Magazine, whomever will be running specials that'll sort of try to satisfy their religious spiritual constituents by running something on Easter. And, and it's really so odd that so frequently they run these specials that really only cast aspersions at the historicity of the Christian faith. You know, know. They, they don't, they don't, they don't do this with Ramadan or, or anything in the Islamic <laughs> world. They, they, don't, sure. they don't go, oh, let's talk about their holiday and let's try to tear it down and show that in a nice way, you're really stupid if you believe these things. And <laughs> this happens like all the time. One time on one of the specials, they had a enlightened intellectual and he said, you know, we have to realize that in the time of Jesus, uh, saviors and miracle workers were a dime a dozen. That was an exact quote, a dime a dozen. <laughs> People who pr proclaim to be were a dime a dozen, 
but not people who actually were seen for 40 days after they came back from the dead. Christianity persists today. You, you bring it up really well, N.T. It persists today in the midst of a culture that had a bunch of saviors with Messiah complexes. It only exists with one person because that person actually conquered yeah. death. Well, exactly. And, and I mean, we have exactly the same phenomenon in Britain. About 20, 24, 20 years or so ago, I, I took part in a BBC series um, where we went out to Israel, a, a team of us, and we filmed on location um, a whole thing about Jesus. We did all that filming, and, and the guy who was presenting interviewed me and others, and he had a, a, a great sequence about the resurrection. Uh, with about a week to go before this final episode of that series was to be was to be aired, it was going to be aired on Easter Sunday that year. The BBC, somebody in the hierarchy, said we can't possibly have that stuff. Extend the penultimate program and make that cover the last two, and we won't bother about that resurrection stuff. And I, as a as one of the interviewees, was shown what what they were doing. And I, I, if I dare use the language, I know this is an aggressive podcast, so maybe this was one of the more aggressive things that I've done in my life. I actually hit the nuclear button. I went to the press and I said, the BBC is deliberately stifling what we actually recorded, which is a discussion of, and um, people like me interpreting of, the resurrection. And this is going out on Easter Sunday. What are they doing? And you know, it was one of the very few occasions where when I actually lost it like that, it worked. And the BBC was shamed into putting out what was in fact the last program, and it was about the resurrection. And the presenter ended up saying, I'm not sure I can explain it, but it looks as though something very strange happened, and and and, and maybe it was true after all or something. And I thought, on the BBC, we finally did it, just for that flicker, because we have the same syndrome. But you see, this is the problem, that we have been I'm still waiting to the- hear how you lost it. It doesn't sound to me like, I thought you were going to swear or something. I thought you were going to get emotionally volatile. You just still had your nice little English accent. I was very I was very emotionally involved, and I forget, <laughs> I forget even which newspaper as I phoned up, but I and and I basically said, "There's a big story here, and you know the BBC are going to have egg all over their face, and let's let's watch how it plays out." But <laughs> um, we live in a post-enlightenment culture which has split off spirit from body, heaven from earth, whereas the Bible culture is all about heaven and earth being made for each other. And one of the things I constantly bang on about is that kids in school are not taught about Christianity in their school history classes, which they should be. You know, in my country, kids are taught the Greeks and the Romans. So they go from maybe the 5th century BC to maybe the 3rd or 4th century AD. Here are the Greeks and the Romans. And if you say to the teacher, when are you teaching them about Jesus? Oh, we do that in religion. That's in a different bit of the curriculum entirely. And I want to say, sorry, Jesus belongs in the middle of real history. We've got documents which are as good, as thorough, as researchable as anything about Julius Caesar or the Emperor Nero or whoever. We've got the stuff and it belongs there. And he's and impacted part of the re- real history. Real history has been exactly, impacted by exactly. him. And because we who, we who live this gospel, we are supposed to be real historical agents and actors. And of course, this, this does have to do with um, whether you say uh, faith and politics or church and state and so on. And I know that in the country where you live, 250 or so years ago, you got rid of us Brits. And with that, you created a constitution which said that church and state never the twain shall meet, whereas we live with the ambiguity and the puzzle of still trying to work it out. But actually, all people who really follow Jesus know that this is not about my private spirituality only. That's one part of it, but it's also about my public responsibility to be an agent of God's kingdom here and now. Look at the New Testament. That's what the resurrection ended up being all about. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1 has got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a micro habit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. (laughs) 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. 700 some pages in your (laughs) book that is a book of the year from the Association of Theological Booksellers back in 2003. I love, yes, our podcast doesn't have to have the most recent books on it. I want the most meaty books. This is a time-tested book. Uh, sorry to be cynical about our listeners, but very sure. few of us are going to read 700 pages. But I want to give you, I want to give you some highlights. Have you react to this, NT? Here's a, here, here's what you say. Take the resurrection away, and the whole picture is totally different. Take it away, and Karl Marx is probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take it away, and Sigmund Freud was probably right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche was probably right to say Christianity was a religion for wimps. Put it back, and you have a faith that can beat these postmodern quote-unquote prophets at their own game with the Eastern news that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. Well, thank you. I, I, I'd i quite forgotten that I'd written that. Uh, it's a long time ago, so it's nice. To, I, I think I still totally endorse what I, what I said. <laughs> <laughs> right. But this is, that quote just goes to the, the heart of how uh, Christianity is different from other religions. There's a similar morality yeah. in all religions, but it's it's different. There's a different power source. It, it is a different power source, and that's part of the problem with our word religion, um, which, by the way, didn't mean in the ancient world what it means in the modern world. In the modern Western world, religion is precisely what we do escaping the real material world or the world of politics or whatever it is and going off into another sphere. In uh, early Christianity, it precisely wasn't going off into another sphere. It was calling down the power of that other sphere, call it heaven if you like, into the world of earth, transforming, literally transforming Jesus' body and then transforming the actual lives uh, so that they were thinking and feeling differently from how they thought and felt and acted before. And when you chase that through very early in the New Testament, within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul is articulating in a very sophisticated fashion what precisely that means, for instance, in terms of moral behavior and so on. Um, Our trouble is that we have this view of religion, which is basically an 18th century view, uh, as being a sort of escapism. And Christianity gives the light to that right from the beginning. So if you say, if you see Christianity as a religion like the other so-called religions, you're misunderstanding it right from day one. For the cynics or skeptics amongst us, what's another reason or two to at least be open to we're talking about history that Jesus lived again? Well, take the question of who are the first witnesses. Now, one of the things which we don't really like to think about, but it is the case, is that in the ancient world, the ancient Jewish world, the ancient Greco-Roman world, women were not usually regarded as reliable witnesses in a court of law. People said, oh, they'll just be doing this either to please their husbands or to spite their husbands. One way or another, you can't trust a word they say. Now, of course, as though men in court um, don't have any ulterior motives, but that's how they thought. And we've got that in black and white from, for instance, the Jewish historian Josephus, who says quite clearly, we do not allow um, the testimony of women. Uh, You know, there may be the odd exception, but that's the general rule. So if you were inventing stories about the person that you'd followed being raised from the dead, if you were making that up 10 years, 50 years later, which people say, one thing you certainly wouldn't have done would be have the women front and center in the story. But there they are. And the women go and tell the men and the men say, oh, 
you're just making it up. You're all hysterical. They don't believe them. And the women persist and the men discover that it's true. Um, so th that's, that's a remarkable phenomenon because in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the women who are the primary witnesses. And then the men come trundling along later when they've come out of hiding and so on. Another thing which I was very struck by when I was researching this for, for that big book is the use of scripture in those stories. Now we have to remind ourselves that in Paul's letters, he says the Messiah died for our sins and was raised in accordance with the scriptures. So you might have expected that if they're telling the story of Jesus being raised, they would be constantly saying, as it says in Isaiah or Genesis or Samuel or somewhere. Um, but actually it doesn't, which is the more interesting because in the crucifixion narratives, in say Matthew 27 or Mark uh, 15 or the other ones, um, they constantly are referring to and echoing the Old Testament um, because those stories have been mulled over. People have thought about Jesus' death as fulfillment of scripture, but the resurrection stories are very quick, very vivid with hardly any scriptural echoes and allusions at all. Why is that? The answer is this is how oral tradition works when something dramatic and remarkable happens. The people who witness it tell it to people several times over. What I just saw, they haven't had time to figure out scriptural interpretation yet. They, they are just saying that this is what happened and then so-and-so came and then he said this and, and such and such. And here's the thing about oral tradition. Once somebody has told that story three or four or five times, it's fixed and it doesn't change. People have studied this as a phenomenon of oral tradition. So that had these stories been made up 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, they would certainly have woven in all sorts of bits of the Old Testament because they knew how to interpret the resurrection scripturally. Paul does it say in 1 Corinthians 15. But in those four original stories, it looks as though what we have is kind of close up and personal. This is how so-and-so told it because they were there on that first morning. So the, the, the stories, even though they may have been edited by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to fit with their gospels a bit later on down the track, this is how the stories were told from day one. And they have the ring of eyewitness testimony. I think another good one is all of these disciples who saw Jesus, they say they saw Jesus after from the dead, 11 of the 12 of them, well, one of them killed himself, Judas, ahead of time, but 10 of the 11 of them all died of execution and unnatural causes. They, no one, no one dies for a lie when you know you're dying for something that isn't true, right? Yes. I mean, of course, people have seen that, uh, skeptics have seen that argument coming and have regularly said, well, that they were all so psychologically kind of brainwashed by this, this corporate phenomenon of new enthusiasm or whatever it is, that they went off to try to convince themselves by trying to convince other people. Uh, I find that a very unconvincing argument, as indeed I explain in the book. But, but yes, it, it, is, it is broadly the case that they were would be highly unlikely, as you say, to go off and die for a lie. We don't actually know the circumstances of how they all died, but the ones of whom we have any evidence, certainly they are going off and, and being martyred. And Paul himself, of course, who was the last one to see the risen Jesus, as he says in First Corinthians, um, uh, he, of course, as far as we know, died as a martyr in Rome. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a basic argument. As I say, one of the things about arguing about the resurrection is you need all these things together. That's one of the reasons that book is so long, because I found when I was researching it that at several points, people had missed the point. Commentators, uh, other people had, had twisted the evidence or whatever. So I had to go right round the circle. And it's when you put the whole circle together, the convergence is huge. It's massive. So that... Um, of course, it's it's demanding. Uh, my philosophy tutor, when I was an undergraduate, who's a lifelong atheist, and he's still alive, he's here in Oxford, I see him from time to time. Um, when he read that book, which he kindly did, he said, you made a very good case. He said, it's, it's very coherent, um, but because I simply am not prepared to believe that, that there is a God who would raise the dead, I simply choose to believe that there must have been some other explanation for why Christianity happened, even though at the moment I have no idea what that explanation might be. And I said, 
that's fine. I, you know, that's as far as I can push you. But it's an admission because most skeptics will say, we can prove that the resurrection didn't happen. And he was a very honest, very clear thinking man. He was prepared to say, you've made an excellent case. And the answer is, so it all comes down to the fact of, are you prepared to say, maybe this is the revelation of a God who loved the world so much that he decided to rescue it and renew it, starting with his own personal bodily presence. Because as soon as you open the door to that, then it all makes sense. Because, and here's the thing, the resurrection is not simply a weird event within the old creation. It is the foundational and paradigmatic event within the new creation. And that is so scary to people who have bought heavily into the old creation for whatever reason, that they resist it. And, and actually the whole project of the Enlightenment was a way of saying, this is the 18th century Enlightenment, was a way of saying that we are the climax of world history. The French Revolution, the American Revolution. Uh, what have you got on your dollar bills? Novus Ordo Seclorum, a new order of the ages. This is a way of saying this is where world history has reached its climax. And it's us. Look at us. Christianity says, no, world history reached its climax when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. Now, history cannot have two climaxes. So there are cultural reasons built into the Western world why people don't want it to be true. We just have to go on saying, living, praying, praising, celebrating Easter because actually that's God's way of opening people's eyes and letting their hearts be open to that message of love in new creation. I could go on about this all day, as you detect. No, this is brilliant. This is, this is, I'm glad you're going on about this. This is, <laughs> this is great. Let me shoot something your way that I haven't kind of gone public on, so I'll go public on this with you as my counselor and you as my theological <laughs> springboard, backboard. Gosh, it was... It, it feels like most of my life following Christ, which started age 15, 16, so it's 40 years now of reading the Bible, 40 years of following him best I could, 40 years of dealing with how to pray and how to disciple people and bring people to Christ, so just a lot of that. It feels like so much of the 40 years is going, ah, don't believe that anymore. Yep. Uh, don't, don't believe that anymore. Yep. Uh, that's gone. I'll just, I'll just give you a couple like, uh, uh, yeah, don't believe that, um, don't believe that women should be limited in their leadership anymore. Don't believe that anymore. Yep. Uh, don't believe that, uh, seven literal days, 6,000 years ago for creation. Yep. Uh, don't, don't, don't believe that anymore. Uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, uh, it has to be just one author, right? It has to be just one. I, well, okay, maybe there was Deutero or Tritero Isaiah. Maybe there was two, but okay, fine, whatever. I, what, what, one, one author by Isaiah, two, three, I don't know, 12, who cares? I don't, I, I don't care. I'm not saying that the book of Isaiah doesn't care, but just, but this is the one thing for me, and I'm not saying all those other things I talked about aren't important, sure. and I'm not saying you shouldn't have convictions about them. I'm just saying in my own spiritual formation and journey, I'm less apt to get frisky about fewer and fewer things in the Bible. This is yeah, aggressive yeah. life. I'm less apt to get pissy about <laughs> certain things in the Bible than I am others because I used to die on every hill. But this is one, this is one like I'll die on this hill all day long. In fact, this, oh, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, this is the only hill. And when you die on this hill, you're dead because there's nothing <laughs> else about faith other than yeah. this. Your response to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's absolutely right. Um, I'll give you a lovely story. I was in a hurry for a train. I got into a cab. The cab got into a, a traffic jam and I was looking at my watch and the driver saw me looking at my watch. And as he looked in the mirror, he saw that I was clergy. I had Bishop's uh, thing on with the dog collar and so on. And he said, oh, you're Bishop, are you? I said, yeah, I'm Bishop. He, he said, you're having a bit of trouble about your debates about women bishops, aren't you? And I said, yeah, we are having a bit of trouble about that. And then he said this, he said, what I always say is, if God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, everything else is basically rock and roll in it. And I sat there in the back of the cab and said, yes. And I texted my colleague back home in Durham. And I said, you never guess what I just heard. And my colleague texted me right back and said, there's your Easter morning sermon right there. And I said, yes, you're right. The resurrection is so central that once you put, it doesn't mean that other stuff doesn't matter. Right. But it means that once you put this in the middle, there's a kind of a hierarchy out from there. And certainly the question of the unity of Isaiah, certainly the question of, 
um, the, the so-called literal interpretation of Genesis and, and the other things you said. Of course, there are debates about women in ministry. That's perhaps inevitable, granted all sorts of historical factors and so on. But who is the first person who tells somebody else, who is told by Jesus to tell somebody else, that he has risen from the dead and that he is Lord. It's Mary Magdalene. Go and tell my brothers and Peter this and that and the other. Jesus does not say to Mary Magdalene, go and tell Peter to come here because I've got an important message and I need to give it to him to give to everyone else. Mary. So this is how I and others have argued about women, preachers, women, clergy. Announcing that the crucified Jesus is raised from the dead is the very center of Christian ministry. Anyway, so the resurrection tells you that. That's the most important sermon ever given. It was given by a woman. Of course. Of course. Exactly. But I totally agree. And I think probably all of us, certainly I myself, but um, uh, I think there are many things in my background and my tradition which I've had to say, actually, do you know what? I wouldn't say it like that now. And in particular, in the middle of it, so much of my tradition, the British, Anglican, and evangelical tradition, was all about how to go to heaven when you die. And the point of the Bible is not about how I go to heaven. The last chapter of the book of Revelation is not saved souls going up to heaven. It's the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. And the message is the dwelling of God is with humans, not here's how humans get to dwell with God. And if we could only see the whole story of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, that way round, all sorts of things would click into place with a new energy and drive. And... uh, I'm in my 70s now. I don't know how many more years I've got left to be a teacher and preacher, but I'm intending to go on banging on about this one because I think it's really, really important. You've mentioned it a few times, platonic thought. Mm. Uh, I I almost feel like given a Reader's Digest version to our listeners, (laughs) but I'd rather you do it, one, because you're smarter than me. So give us a primer on what platonic thought is and how it actually infiltrates our misunderstanding of the Bible and misunderstanding of life, because it is, it, it is part of what contributes to the brand of spirituality that we follow. And I don't mean just general spiritualists who are outside the church, but I mean people who are into spirituality who are in the church. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, Plato obviously lived 400 years before Jesus, and what it's basically saying is that the present world is a world of shadows and illusions. It's not as real as it seems, and beyond that and behind that and above that is a real world, which is what we might call an abstract or, if we wanted to use the term like that, spiritual world, which is um, not reducible to terms of what you can touch and see and weigh in, in, in a scale or whatever. So it's a matter of then learning to penetrate through the physical world in order to see the form of the good or the true form of how things actually are. And and there are debates about this. Some forms of Platonism say that the world is actually a bad and dark and shameful and dirty place and you need to escape it. And that's where you get what they call Gnosticism, where people think that they have a secret knowledge which enables them not really to belong to this world at all anymore and to live in a different way like that. Um, sort of ordinary Platonism isn't so negative about the material world. Creation is not a bad thing, but it's like a dark glass through which you're supposed to move to see the reality. And people have sometimes said, well, maybe that's what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see through a glass darkly. But actually, he was thinking like a Jew about creation and new creation. And for a Jew, new creation is not uh, saying no to the old creation. It's saying God loves this old creation so much, he's going to rescue and renew it and restore it. So then the first two or three hundred years of Christianity, really through as far as the third century, most of the great teachers are still very much in the Jewish mold of saying when God finally completes what he accomplished in Jesus, it's going to be a new creation, a new very bodily world. Somewhere in about the third century and on beyond that, certainly by the time of Augustine in the fourth and fifth century, then Platonism creeps in. And instead of talking about the renewal of 
this world. They're basically talking about the escape from this world and going to heaven. And that then becomes the primary teaching in the Middle Ages. That then leaves a vacuum as to how you do political theology, how you do your social responsibility. And that's been a problem ever since. And when the Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin, and great people like that who I revere and honor in the 16th century, when they are addressing the corruptions in the Roman Catholic Church, um, which was what they were trying to do, they don't challenge this image which says the aim of salvation is to go to heaven. They simply uh, readjust the mechanism by which you get there. And in the modern world, particularly in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century in, the, in Western Europe and America, there's been a strong streak of anti-Judaism, and people have seen the message of the goodness of creation and creation's rescue as, oh, that's a very Jewish thing. That's all about uh, land and soil and blood and so on. And, and we don't do that. We are, we are spiritual people because we're Christians. That's what Nietzsche was objecting to, that these Christians are just wimps. Um, but since uh, over the last hundred years, many of us have soaked ourselves in the Jewish world of the New Testament and said, actually, yes, these Christians really did believe that what that Jesus meant it when he said, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. That is what it's supposed to be all about. And as we and back to Easter again. So sorry, it's a quick yeah. whistle stop tour and I probably missed no, out lots and lots of stuff. But but um it, it's it's really as with the reformers saying, we're not going to take things on trust for the Middle Ages. We've got to go back and see what the Bible was really all about. I'm doing exactly the same thing. Here is what the Bible is actually all about. And it's not just the Middle Ages. It's the whole of Western Christianity, which has been seduced into this um, uh, going to heaven narrative instead of embracing or being embraced by the God coming to dwell with us narrative, which is really um, the antithesis of Platonism. There are many devout Christian teachers today. I've just reviewed somebody's book not long ago, all about how the real aim of life is to forget this world and go to heaven where we'll gaze upon God, the so-called beatific vision. This is a med medieval idea many people are embracing today. But actually, in the New Testament, when somebody says, we want to see the Father, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen you the seen Father. You've seen me physically. Well, you've seen a physical thing, me. You've seen the Father. Yeah. And so, the New Testament is saying to us, if you want to see the living and true God, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with awe and reverence and expect to be shocked and surprised because God is much closer and much more personal and much more compassionate than we've even dared to believe. This is a little bit of a vision cast for those of us who are in the aggressive life community here. <laughs> what N.T. Wright is talking about here is basically why a lot of people believe that matter is unspiritual, matter is bad. This is why in the early ages, middle ages, many monks were beating themselves with whips, flagellating themselves because they're trying to beat down the flesh. They thought the flesh was their literal flesh and literal physical matter is always bad. And so let's focus on the spirit, let's focus on prayer. It's what I think you're talking about. Let's focus on heaven where we go. I think this has infiltrated the average Christian's life, and it's enabled us to be more passive. Because instead of charging ahead physically with the things we have to charge ahead with aggressively, we just passively spiritualize it. We passively pray about it. We passively say, well, uh, I'm overweight. I'm a slug. But it doesn't really matter. All God cares about is my, my spiritual life. Well, I... I, I'm, I'm really in debt. I can't figure out how to make money work. But money's dirty. Money's money's just this physical thing. I don't really have to figure that out. Well, I, I kind of have a dream to starting a business, but maybe that's too much of a physical dream. I should probably just pray about the work of Mother Teresa, even though she's dead. That wouldn't be a helpful prayer right now. But you know, we have we have these things yeah, yeah. that are that that are infiltrated. And said, no, man, God's given you a, a, a life. There was that old song. The Christian stations are still playing to this day. This world is not my home. This world is your home. God created this world for you, and He's redeeming it. And it's going to be God's home as well. And that's, that's the point. The dwelling of God is with humans. When God renews, brings together heaven and earth, it's God's home which he wants to share with us. That's, that's amazing good news. Yeah, man. Amen. All right, let's have a little more fun here. This has been deep, and I know you'll get deep even when we have fun. We have a little reputation here called the lightning round. This is where I give you a topic, and you have to answer it 
in one or two sentences, like a burst of lightning. Can you handle the challenge, N.T. Wright? <laughs> Try, see. Okay, here we go. Most aggressive thing you are doing right now in your life? Trying to teach ordinary Christians that they've got the biblical story upside down. Wow, that's great. See, I always break the rules because I want to talk more about that, but that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold to my rules. The biggest aggressive mistake that you can remember making and what you learned from it. Oh, when I was young, I played rugby. Need I say more? <laughs> um, how about sharing with us one of your own daily disciplines of connecting with God? Oh, uh Ever since I was about 12 or 13, when somebody told me it was a good idea to read the Bible first thing in the morning, basically that's what I've done. You can probably see a table just behind me there. I make a large pot of tea. I come in here. I spend however long it takes uh, with the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, and that turns into prayer. I follow the, um, the usual traditional Anglican morning prayer framework, but whatever is going on in the world, in my life, etc., I will be holding that in prayer within the readings that I'm doing. I mean, example, I don't know when you're going to air this, but this morning I happened to be reading Psalm 23. I happened to be thinking about the situation in Ukraine and a friend who's working in Ukraine right now. And as I was praying Psalm 23, I was holding this friend within line after line, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil and so on. And that is the start to my day um, most days of most weeks, if I'm sick or traveling or whatever, it sometimes gets, um, slewed around, but, but that's, that's the beginning. Yeah. I, I normally do all that too, except I also do the Septuagint and I find some Aramaic to read and all that stuff. Cause just yeah, doing well, Hebrew and Greek is just quite not challenging. Septuagint enough. is right behind me there. If you want to have a quick glance. <laughs> uh, all right. The, um, why do we need the church in America and in Britain? <laughs> like say, why do we need breathing or, you know, why do we need food or something? The church is the body of Christ. Now, of course, that needs unpacking in all sorts of ways. But Christianity is not a solo venture. It is a team sport. It's very difficult to do love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all by yourself in a small room. You, you can try some of it, but most of that and those are the things that the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing in and through us. Most of that happens communally, uh, and it's challenging. Um, and that is what the church is supposed to be all about, both inside itself and the church is designed to be an outward-looking phenomenon. I, I was tidying my desk this morning, which only happens about every two years, but I just, we just lost, my wife and I just lost a document, and that forces me to tidy it. I'm going to read you what I found typed here from two years ago when I was doing a talk on this. The church is called to be a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, gender-blind in leadership, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group. Now, that's why we need the church. Amen. <laughs> Thing about the youngest generation that gives you hope. Oh, boundless enthusiasm and energy, willingness to look at things from different angles. That's really exciting. If you could ask God one question right now, what would it be? Right now it would be, what are we supposed to be doing about Ukraine? Yeah, yeah. I, all right, I'm going to get your opinion on this because I'm, I'm, I'm confused about this. I just... And I kind of have two responses. As an American, you're in England, you're closer there, so you're a little bit different. On, on, on one side, I think, hey, man, there's oppression going on there. Let's get some people over there. Sometimes justice means you bring might. I, I feel that sometimes. And then, the other, and, then, and then I go, wait a minute. America has had more than enough its share in being the police of the world and interfering in things that are outside of our country. And our track record isn't really good for doing much of anything other than increasing our national debt and having a lot of deaths that shouldn't have happened to begin with. So I, I'm, I'm torn as a, as a believer, as a reader of the Bible, what I should be thinking about Ukraine. What do you think I should be thinking about Ukraine? 
Uh, Britain does not have a good track record of interventions either. Um, and when together Britain and America intervened, whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever, we just made matters worse. Every bomb we dropped there was another recruiting agent for, for Islamic militant um, groups. I have believed for a long time that the time has come and there's been stiff resistance to this for us to have a genuine global order. The idea of America as the world's policeman was always a crazy idea. It's just that you're a very big and powerful country. So others tend to call on you, hey, come and help. And America helps when it suits uh, America and not when it doesn't. So just as in the 19th century, there was a move in my country away from local militias run by local uh, aristocrats through to a national credible police force, we need to find some way of doing that globally. And ideally, it should be the UN, but ideally what should have happened in the Ukraine would be a peacekeeping UN force composed of, I don't know, Norwegians, Nigerians, New Zealanders, et cetera, et cetera. People who would not be part of an obvious Western imperial power. We need to be able to think differently globally in order basically to do the humanitarian task of peacekeeping. But um, we have so much missed our opportunities and gone about things in the wrong way that, that we're not starting with a clean slate. We're starting with all kinds of rubbish in people's minds, which has to be somehow worked through. Unfortunately, right now, as we speak, as we're recording this, there are bombs and bullets flying around in the Ukraine and people are getting killed. Uh, and, and simply sending the tanks in um, uh, and so on wouldn't at the moment, I don't think, do any good at all. That's why we have to pray for the people of the Ukraine and for Putin and so on. If he is our enemy, um, Jesus taught us to pray for and love our enemies. That's difficult, but we should be doing that. Um, out of that prayer, uh, I had an email from my friend in Lviv in the Western Ukraine this morning, and, and she said something to the effect of uh, what prayer does is it produces cracks within the facade of evil. If you imagine evil as a great facade with some little hairline cracks, and from those cracks, then the evil can collapse. But we have to go on praying. Um, it's the best weapon there is. But you also said earlier, which is something I have to chew on more, that a biblical theology that isn't rife with a platonic philosophy drives us to be engaged in the physical problems of this world. And I, as a Christian or a pastor, can't just be only concerned with getting people to heaven. I actually have to be engaged with these things. Uh, of course, you have to be concerned with what it means to say. I mean, when I was working as bishop, uh, I sometimes used to put the question like this. Uh, there was a big town at the south end of my diocese called Darlington. I remember saying to a meeting of the mayor and the council of Darlington, what would Darlington look like if God was in charge here? And they kind of, oh, you know, what's he trying to say? I said, because actually that's what Jesus' message about God's kingdom is all about. And it doesn't mean that everyone else sits back and does nothing because God's going to do it all, because God is a power-sharing God. Right from Genesis 1, God gives human beings responsibilities within his world. But if human beings don't realize that they are stewards of God's creation— and of God's people, etc., then they start to self-aggrandize. They become, what's your phrase, aggressive, um, and, and not in a good way. And so the, the message of God's kingdom, of God being in charge, and then you say, which God is this? And the answer is, it's the God who looks like Jesus of Nazareth. And when you say, supposing Jesus was in charge, what would what would be different here? How would we do our prison system differently? How would we do the hospital or hospice system differently? and so on and so on. Our social programs, our drug rehab programs, etc. And if you ask the question that way around, this is one of the reasons we have churches, is to say to the local authorities, this is what it ought to look like when God's in charge. We're here to work with you, to pray with you, to pray for you. Now can we do this together? Instead of saying, because we're church, we're taking a back seat because we're teaching people how to go to heaven and you can run the earth. That, that is a derogation of duty. You don't find it in the New Testament. My last question for you. The key to a great cup of tea. <laughs> the water must be boiling when you pour it on the tea. I know that no American understands this. I have had many ungreat cups of tea in America because the water was only tepid. It's got to be boiling. 
brother, this has been great. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about? Uh, it's been a long day already for me. Uh, I'm, I think we've done pretty well. <laughs> All right. The book that we referenced is The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. If you're not interested in this topic, virtually any biblical or theological topic, you're going to find something out there by him. He's a very prolific writer and speaker and who I now choose to count as a friend. This has been a rich time, N.T. I got to tell you, I, I, I enjoyed the heck out of this. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been fun. It's been fun. Hey, we've got a really good offer for listeners here of The Aggressive Life. This isn't for your loser friends who aren't here today. This is for you. <laughs> NT is offering you a free online course to dive into the Bible with him. You can redeem this at www.ntwriteonline.org slash philemon. P-H-I-L-E-M-O-N. If you're not familiar with that book of the Bible, we'll probably put that in the notes right there. And you can also follow NT on Instagram at ntwriteonline. So that's it. You heard it, man. I'll tell you, I don't, I don't care what walk of life you're in. If you're in the theology walk of life, you're in the military walk of life, you're in the plumbing walk of life, if you're in the, the mothering walk of life, there are things before you you need to think about the right way and get after them physically, aggressively, and biblically. I hope we've equipped you to do that today, as well as having a great Easter. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.